It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. All right, this episode of Socks Degrees is going to be a fun one. We have Sarah Langs, who is a reporter and producer for MLB.com. She's one of the finest baseball stats research people I have ever met in the entire world. And she was just the analyst on the all-female broadcast for the very first time in Major League Baseball history. Hi, Sarah. Hi. I don't know how to answer that introduction, but thank you, and thank you for having me. So uh, you're very welcome. Uh, we have worked a lot of games together, and I've never asked you this question. Why are you a baseball person? It's a great question. You know, I am a baseball person because of my family, because of my parents. I grew up, all we watched was sports, and baseball was always the sport that I loved most. I don't exactly know why. I think it's because it was always there. And the season feels longer than any other sport. And there's games every single night. And it was just always there for me to be watching. And, you know, sometime around, I always say like sixth grade or so, uh, I had a teacher, my English teacher in sixth grade, who sort of said to me, you know, you like writing and you really love baseball. You know, you could do these two things together for a living one day. And that's sort of what set me off on this path to try to be a baseball person and work in this realm. It seems like every five minutes you tweet something that's interesting. Thank uh, you. How does your baseball mind work as you're watching games? What is your process to come up with the things you come up with? Oh, my goodness. Uh, frenetic is a good word to use, I think. Um, you know, I try to watch every single game. I've got a monitor going and, you know, that MLB TV four box on a couple different devices and just trying to keep everything up all at once. And, you know, it's all about knowing what's going on and sort of knowing the existing context. So you both know this as broadcasters and with, you know, prepping for each game every single day that, you know, more every day because you prep for the previous day. So I, I sort of see what I look into and research in a similar way where if I miss a day, I feel so behind. But because I'm pretty much keeping up with every team as best I can every single day, I know, okay, that's you know Joey Votto's fourth straight day with a home run, something like that right off the bat without even having to look. So it's almost like that context is almost built in, um, which again is just there's a lot going on. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm keeping track of just on a daily basis. I want to ask you about social media and Twitter, Sarah, and how uh, that has instructed you uh, in terms of not only your love for the sport, but being able to convey the information that you find most interesting and you get that immediate feedback, right? So, you know, I, it's hard to say, like, where would we be without Twitter? But it's kind of that question, right, that there would be a little bit of a vacuum there in terms of how you go about your business, right? 
Definitely. You know, it's a uh, social media is its own sort of beast, but I am really grateful for the ability just to share stuff out there like that. And I actually have to credit one of my best friends from college, JT, who, when I was, you know, going down this path, doing some internships in sports and some internships in reporting in general, he said to me, you know, you need a public Twitter. I, I had a Twitter that I didn't use where I just followed reporters to keep up with baseball news. And he said, you know, you need to put yourself out there. You need to put an actual Twitter out there. He came up with at slangs on sports, which is my handle. Um, and that's when I started sharing my work and eventually sharing stats as well. So, I, you know, I'm sure I would have gotten to that point regardless. But he was the one who said to me, you know, you can sort of carve your path this way as well. And, and watching, listening to, consuming baseball right now is a shared experience in that regard, right? So let's say a guy's got a no-hit bid uh, in in the seventh inning in Anaheim. That's the kind of thing where all of a sudden the little community becomes this big community, right? And that that's how I sometimes uh, have to remind myself as we're doing games that not only are people listening or they're watching Jason, uh, they're also talking to each other <laughs> via Twitter. And it, it, it's, it's different than it was when I started for sure. Yeah, but I love that. I mean, that shared experience is so important. You know, you also get the no hit bid and all of these fans who don't even know who I am are tweeting at me not to jinx something, which is always very funny. Um, you know, get to the sixth or seventh inning. Hey, the last no hitter on this date in baseball history was whenever. Oh, don't jinx it. I, I'm 3000 miles away from this no hit bid. I'm not doing anything. Uh, but I really like that. And I, I enjoy when, you know, sometimes people have these conversations and sort of the mentions of my tweets uh, where they're going back and forth trying to figure out what season a certain stat happened or something and I kind of just let them be but I love seeing that happen and I think it is really cool what that people can unite over that I mean I think that's a lot of in my memories of going to games as a kid you know my dad would always talk to someone who was next to us and you end up getting their life story and you find out why they're a fan or anything else. And I think a lot of that goes on on Twitter now in a really good way where people sort of share that fandom with each other without knowing each other at all. Who do you think can more affect a no-hitter, someone on Twitter or an announcer? <laughs> well, I feel like since I'm talking to both of you, I need to say someone on Twitter and just put the blame on myself. But uh <laughs> It's See, amazing. you took that the other way than some of our guests. Some of the guests <laughs> would be like, hey, look, it's a bus. Go under it. <laughs> I would never. I would never. I, I'm glad to take the blame. I, I think I've jinxed about 15 no-hitters this year, apparently. So, you know, cool to have that uh, power that I didn't know I had. Congratulations. <laughs> this, this being Sox degrees, we're always on the hunt for Chicago and White Sox connections. You're a University of Chicago Maroon. Yes, yeah, I went to a ton of White Sox games in college. I went to school in Hyde Park. And part of why I was so interested in going there was having two teams, you know, and making sure that I was close to baseball, which I knew was going to be part of whatever my career was moving forward. And also, I just wanted to be able to go to games. And uh, I mean, my best friend in the world is now a huge baseball fan, and she did not know what sport maybe the White Sox played probably uh, when when we all started at school. So uh, pretty proud of that. And we went to a lot of games. And I, I also got a chance to, I didn't get to cover any White Sox games actually, but I covered some Cubs games when I interned for uh, now NBC Sportsnet Chicago. What, um, what are your memories of going to Sox games as a collegiate person? Were you like debaucherous and crazy? What are we talking about here? 
Uh, you know, I was the get the seat in the outfield and then sit absolutely as close as possible. I knew exactly which sections they would be checking and which ones they wouldn't be. And the White Sox were not that great when I was in college. So I, I graduated in 2015. So I saw a ton of Chris Sale, which was awesome. I got to see some Jose Abreu, especially in those final two years. And, you know, it was really fun. I mean, you know, I love any baseball game. I don't care how many other people are there or anything else. And I really, really enjoyed all of those chances. And it was cool. I mean, the first time I saw Mike Trout play was when the Angels visited the White Sox, I want to say, in 14 or 15. And, you know, it was just really fun to share all of that with my, you know, collegiate uh, peers who were not really baseball fans for the most part. Sarah, my experience with baseball is the most fun I have is when I'm working because that's what I know in terms of baseball. Can you go to a baseball game now that you're you're in the business and still be just a pure fan and kind of forget the fact that you might have to tweet about it later or write about it later? You know, it's it's impossible. You know, I mean, I'll be sitting in the stands now and I haven't been to a game in the stands in two years, uh, partially because of the pandemic. And then I just haven't gotten a chance to so far this season. But I'll be on my phone. I'll be staring at the out of town scoreboard, wondering how that team scored four runs. I mean, it's very hard to distance yourself. But also, I mean, that's not a bad thing because it's baseball and it's awesome. So if I'm spending a little bit more time looking down because I'm looking into an Abreu home run while I'm sitting at City Field or whatever else it might be. You know, I'll take that. But I'm sure there are people sitting around me who are like, wow, she doesn't care about this at all. And it's like, <laughs> if only you knew, but I'm not going to explain myself. <laughs> you should start explaining yourself. When people give you that look, you should be like, no, no, no. Here's the thing about baseball reference. And then should like do a mini tutorial. Oh, my gosh. I, I could be. I mean, I've definitely had some pretty fun moments of uh, teaching people in sections I was in. Uh, some interesting things about the game. My mom and I and my grandma, before she passed away, would always go down to spring training in Arizona. Uh, I think we had an 11-year streak until the pandemic. And we go to Giants games and uh, Scottsdale Stadium because my mother is a Giants fan. And there was a year where Pat Vendetti was on the Giants, at least in spring training. And he came in and he was doing his thing and no one was noticing. And I was so stressed out by the fact that nobody realized what he was doing. I'm like, he just switched. Did you see that? And I ended up in, in between innings, like teaching the five people near us about him and, you know, the famous headline when it called him amphibious and the whole Pat Vendetti story. Um, and so I, I've definitely had a couple moments like that, but no, no in-seat reference tutorials yet. Wait, wait a second. There were people around you when a switch pitcher was we on the mound who were just like, yeah, nachos. Nope. No idea. No, granted. I mean, he's the only guy who does this. You're not expecting it. So you probably think, oh, I probably saw wrong or maybe he was standing on that side of the rubber. I mean, I feel like you're more likely to convince yourself that you imagined it than to know unless you knew. And you know spring training. I mean, spring training is great, but I think it's more casual in the stands even so. Uh, than regular season games. So I will give people that credit as well. I have a question about um, your connection to the game and some of the healthy distance you need to kind of, I guess, objectively look at things that are interesting, right? So can you talk about that balance of getting to know insiders in the game, players, managers, front office people, and also trying to maintain Again, you love the sport and you're writing about the good and fun things that happen. But over the course of time, there are people you get to know. You're like, I kind of like this person. And, you know, do you have to kind of fight that idea of making sure that you don't write too much about somebody just because you have a personal relationship that you've forged in that regard? 
For sure. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's a difficult balance and I think it also comes in, you know, when a team is struggling or when a player or an individual manager, whoever you want to say is struggling. I know that now knowing that the following, the, knowing the quantity of the following I have, I guess, and everything else, I always feel maybe a little bit badly sending out the, you know, tweet about whatever it is, comeback losses or, you know, pick the bad stat, if you will. Uh, but overall, I mean, I think it's just part of being a professional is you need to be able to push that away as best you can. But I do think that sports in general are so interesting because most people who report on them got into this because they were fans. And at a certain point in your career, you, you have to stop being a fan. Right. And it's just I think that that's such an interesting contrast or contradiction almost because everyone is there because they were living and dying by the Mets in 1999 or whatever else it is. But then you're here and you're on TV or you're talking about it, whatever else, and that can't matter anymore. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how any of us really get to that point, but I think you just have to be able to. And I think that's what separates people who fully get into this me versus, you know, those who don't quite make it all the way in maybe. Yeah. And I want to ask Jason the same question because, you know, I've, I've had to learn that process too. Uh, you become friends with players over the course of time and then they become former players, right, Jason? And, and you stay friends. Um, but I always try to remember and I always go, try to go out of my way, obviously in a more normal setting when we're around the team all the time, to really foster those relationships and make sure you're available. Because the last thing you want to do, Benetti, is only talk about the three guys you know well. And then the 14 other guys you don't know well, you, you know, you don't have any good information. That's the struggle, right, sometimes? It's it's very difficult. And I, I, I agree with you on that, Len. And I think it's interesting. Sarah, I... I, I wonder, as we all three sit here and wrestle with this very interesting question, I think, do you ever stop being a fan? I think you're a fan of something. Yes. Like, yeah. how, I, I, as I'm thinking about your answer there, I feel like I've like segmented my fandom for like team and player, but the game always overarchingly remains. Where's your like... Where does if I said where are you a fan right now, what would you say to that? Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. I mean, for me, I'm a fan of the game, you know, and I'm a fan of individuals and storylines and successes and players. And I think as a kid and certainly growing up, yeah, I was a fan of a team. And I really don't think I have any of that left. I sometimes get referred to as a fan, you know, old habits die hard, whatever else, but I'm not, but I'm just a fan of baseball. I'm a fan of all of the good that it does bring and just being able to keep up with all of it. I mean, you know, before I was doing the job that I'm doing now, uh, a former coworker used to refer to me as having 750 favorite players, which in the previous 25 man rosters was every single player in baseball. <laughs> and that's kind of when that transition was beginning. That was early in my career at ESPN. And that's when I was starting to, really view things on a much more level playing field that I want to research all of this. I want to know as much as I can about all of this. And he would joke with me because I would say, oh, well, he's my favorite pitcher and he's my favorite pitcher. And there will be like 15 of them. And I, I think that that's sort of where I am now too, is just that it's all of the game and that that is what I am a fan of. It seems like the, the like if, if this were a, um, if this were like British royalty, the information is the monarch. Yes. Is, is basically what I'm gathering from you. 
I don't know Definitely. why I had to go British there. I, I don't I could have just well, been. President. Um, I, so I, I want to know if I told 12 year old Sarah Langs that she was going to be the first analyst on an all female broadcast of Major League Baseball ever. What would she have said then? She would not have believed you. Um, and I'm not sure that current Sarah Langs even fully believes you, even though this happened uh, last week. But, you know, I, it, it was just so meaningful. And I've called other games. And, you know, this was just on another level, knowing the historic moment. And, of course, it's important that it's the first because it's not the last. It's important because these things are going to continue to happen. And they won't be as hyped up. And that's kind of a good thing because we just need this to be normal and commonplace and not something that even needs to be called out. But, you know, I, I was really lucky. I, I grew up in New York City, so I was aware of people like Susan Waldman. So I never really viewed this as something that wasn't possible. And that's a huge credit to my parents who were big sports fans and never would have said, don't go do that. Uh, but, you know, I still probably would have known at 12 that this hadn't quite happened. And I, I'm not sure I would have been able to comprehend the fact that I would get to be part of such an amazing, amazing moment. Sarah, how, how quickly did this come to, to pass? And when were you first uh, made aware of the, of the possibility of this type of broadcast? So I, it's funny because it was not initially presented as the first part, at least to me. I, I got an email, as I often do, saying, hey, are you available this day to do this game? And uh, that was probably a couple of weeks out. And it was, hey, it's going to be you and uh, Melanie Newman and Alana Rizzo. Um, Pre-game show wasn't mentioned at that point. And um, it, it did say all-female broadcast, but it didn't say first. It didn't say any of that. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I mean, I'm just excited to do a game. I've admired both Alana and Melanie from so long for, from afar. So was really excited to work with them. And then, you know, about a week before, I guess, we ended up getting some PR requests and they were asking us to talk about this being the first all-female uh, Major League Baseball broadcast. And that's when I learned was when we were asked that question. I mean, I did not know it was the first. I, I certainly couldn't think of another off the top of my head. But, you know, you never know what has happened in the past. So uh, I was just excited at the prospect of getting to work with the two of them. And then it turned out being, you know, this great, wonderful thing. All right. I have a, a very specific question about uh, that game. It was Orioles raised, right? Yes. What was the most interesting thing that happened in that game that you can immediately remember? Hmm, that's a good one. I mean, honestly, this isn't a necessarily specifically a game moment, but we were interviewing Rich Hill, who's now not even on the team, uh, during the game. And I think it was the first home run of the game. Randy Rosarena went deep and Rich Hill actually called the home run because he's, a, you know, great with these interviews, everything else. And it's definitely very funny that on our first all-female broadcast, the first home run was actually called by a man, as it turns out. Not anything <laughs> bad whatsoever, but it is very funny. And he did such a great job. And we were actually talking to him about breakout players. And he was sort of struggling with who he should say and then randy homered and he was like oh i'm gonna pick him so uh that's definitely a moment that stands out because i i love when we get a chance to talk to players in those kinds of uh you know settings and of course when you whenever you had a player calling a play and when they really get into that mode for me even just as a fan at home those are that's what puts those interviews like on another level is when they know to do that as opposed to just talking through their answer even as a home run is sailing over the fence 
And then the other one is the bigger question, and this one's a little more uncomfortable, but, you know, Benetti and I deal with it on a daily basis. When you call games, uh, you, you, you get a certain segment of fan who basically says, I don't like you. You are calling a game that I want to watch or listen to, and I don't like you. How do you deal with negative feedback in that regard? Because we all deal with it. You know, I really don't read the replies. I, I regret. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> Yay. Oh, <I> do. <laughs> really, really try not to. And I will say that, you know, there are a lot of people out there with some outdated thoughts. So I really tried not to specifically with this, but I will say I, I don't read the replies and I have some really nice coworkers and friends who have sent me some nice things that people said after this broadcast and after some others. And so I just sort of wait and let them send those to me if they exist, but I am not going to read however many are in the replies of those tweets. That is so smart. I love Thank it. Thank you. And I am not smart at all. I like reading them because I think they're funny. I, uh, and and I'm a little bit of um, self-defeating, evidently, too. I, the, uh, I, as I was asking you the question about the first all-female broadcast, I got this very slight pang in my heart as well. Because, I, you know, there aren't a lot of people with a disability on television. And so I get a lot of questions of, like, what's it like to represent the entire population and things like that? And that always makes me feel weird because that's not possible. And so to ask you about that is kind of weird for me because we both understand the context and anybody who's been a first anything understands the context, but I would imagine it might get tiring as well, or you just want to be known for the work. How do you balance those two interests in your mind as you think about what you were a part of, which is absolutely a historical fact and important cornerstone moment. Well, it's interesting, you know, I mean, that's kind of, as with you, always been the case for me, as long as I've been in this realm, is that I'm usually doing something that not a whole lot of women have done, but I also just want my work to stand out. So I think that I was really faced with how I balance those within this last week with this, the fact that this uh, broadcast was the first all-female broadcast, and it really put that part on display. But I, I think that it is really important to acknowledge it. I mean, certainly I've been asked a handful of times, but I'm always glad to give an answer, and I think they're always different because I, I don't remember what I said the last time around. <laughs> but I think that as much as for me, I do want to, of course, just be known for my work, I think that I need to think of it from a little bit bigger picture. And while for me, I do want to just be known for my work and I hope that people do, I think it's important for those next people down the line that it is called out and that it is mentioned. And I think that acknowledging it's the first, it's not going to be the last, these things will continue to happen. I think it's important for young people, not just women, just young people in general, whether they're minorities or not, to hear about that. So I'm glad to help, you know, spread that conversation, spread that conversation topic and spread that message. And I, I think that that's a really great output of this. Do you think the sport has done a good job reaching out to minorities and women in terms of fandom? And, you know, I think Shohei Otani's story uh, is, is incredible. And I think it does transcend the sport a little bit. Do you think baseball's done a good job? And uh, is there any way that you would tweak it if you could? It's a great question. I mean, I, I'm not sure that I'm even fully qualified enough to answer just since I'm already so much 
within the sport. But I think mentioning Otani and other players we have that really, you know, transcend any boundaries that aren't your typical, uh, you know, baseball player, what they would look like in 1910. I, I think that they do a really great job and promoting those players is really important. I mean, I'm thinking of things like let the kids play a couple of years ago and just the current promotion of guys like Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr. before he was hurt, Fernando Tatis Jr. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think the players themselves do a lot of the marketing. And I should mention Tim Anderson, of course, uh, because he was sort of before those other guys. And of course, because I'm talking to you guys. But <laughs> I, I think that those moments really, really bring in fans. And I think it's important for fans to see that baseball can can have so many different faces. And that kind of gets back to the broadcast. I mean, you know, we talked a lot about how you know, this is important for young people who want to do these jobs to see that it's possible. But I think it's just as important for young people or anyone who don't want to do these jobs just to see that they can be more reflected in their announcers potentially, and that there is the potential for that diversity in them. So I think all of that, just having the game and all facets of it more accurately reflect who the fans are, and fans are everybody, we know that. I think that that's really important, but I think that the marketing of those young stars is just in such a great spot right now. And I think that they, they create fans more, more than anything else. So uh, I ask you this next question because I had a scout walk up to me in an A-ball press box and say, what do you got, polio? Um, what is the dumbest thing that anybody's said to you? <laughs> As a woman covering baseball, please don't say the name, but but uh, what is the dumbest thing anyone said to you? Oh, my gosh. I, you know, the one that comes to mind, actually, is that I had a doctor's appointment a couple months ago where, you know, they're going through, they're writing everything down. And they asked me where I work and he asked me where I work. I say Major League Baseball. And he just continues. He's like, OK, so you're a trainer. And I was like, what? Like, I don't even look like a trainer. I am not strong enough whatsoever. And I mean, there aren't even that many female trainers. So I thought that was fascinating that he just figured that that's what that meant. I didn't say research. I didn't say anything. I said Major League Baseball. I was waiting for the next question. And he wrote down that I was a trainer. I was like, well, that's not what I do. Uh, so <laughs> that, that's a recent one. But th that one's going to stick with me for a while. That's so random. Right? I, I just don't understand. And again, he picked a profession or a, you know, a line of work within baseball that is also very male dominated. Again, most of them are, but like there are not many women doing that either. So I have no idea. <laughs> but Eddie, you got to answer the, what, what was your response yeah. to the uh, gentleman who made that comment? No, I said, I said, no, we actually eradicated that some decades ago. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God. He was like the most scouty scout ever. He had a giant bucket hat on, was like 105,000 years old. Oh it my was gosh. it was amazing. It was in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. It was really funny. Wow. Wow. Sarah, who were were you a Met fan or a Yankee fan growing up? I was a Mets fan. I was a Mets fan. Um, okay. My mom is a big Giants fan, so we watched a lot of Giants games, too. Certainly the advent of MLB TV helped a lot. Um, and, you know, we were always watching MLB Network for, you know, just to watch as much as we could um, and watching ESPN games, you know, all of those weekday games, everything else, uh, any baseball games we could get. 
I want to ask you about some uh, nerdy stats stuff, uh, and we'll try to make it as broad as we can for people who are not into nerdy stats stuff. But forget uh, about that. Let's go specific. <laughs> I love so, it. So, give, give me your kind of general favorite group of stats or the things that really stand out to you on a daily basis. So something that I find myself looking at a lot are expected stats. So if you're on Baseball Savant, you know, familiar with StatCast, expected stats are based on quality of contact. So we have stuff like expected batting average, expected slugging percentage, expected ERA for pitchers, um, expected weighted on base. And what I like about those is that they give you a number of what it should be. You know, it's similar to kind of fielding independent pitching if you know that with uh, with pitching uh, in comparison to ERA. And what I like about expected stats, expected batting average, is you can figure out sort of if a guy has been lucky, if there has been a lack of luck or whatever else. So what, what that stat does is it looks at similar batted balls. So we're talking about quality of contact, which is launch angle and exit velocity. And it's looking at similar batted balls from what this guy has done, whoever we're talking about, and how those have done in the StatCast era. So was that a double? Was that a triple? Was that an out? And that's where you kind of get into, I think especially fans are often aware of, oh, it seems like he's hitting into a lot of hard outs, something like that. You can sort of quantify that and figure out what is going on beneath the surface. So those are kind of go-tos for me to figure out if someone is for real. Uh, which ends up being, you know, that, that's what we talk about for all of April and May. And then you get towards the end of the season. And it's like, okay, can he continue this into the postseason? So uh, that goes for batters or pitchers. But those are something that I think I end up looking at every day, kind of depending on who I'm looking at and what the storyline is. That, that's great timing, Sarah, because last night um, I had noticed over the last week Yohan Moncada, uh, the, the great uh, th switch hitting third baseman for the White Sox, particularly left-handed, uh, right-handed pitchers have just been feeding him change-up after change-up after change-up. And so I went right to Baseball Savant, and I noticed the expected batting average against all the different pitches, and it was like you know 300 uh, fastballs, I think breaking balls, maybe 330. And then I went to uh, uh, change-ups, and the expected batting average was like 212. His slugging was like... 300 and it's like that makes sense so for me a lot of times i watch games and then i just get this feeling and i like to go to those numbers to either confirm what i'm seeing or to maybe make me think about it differently does that happen to you when you watch games definitely and i like what you said right at the end there because the best you know i being someone who researches for a living, I, I get a lot of, you know, why this stat doesn't matter or, you know, why do we care about these numbers? And, you know, that is speaking of the replies I don't read. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to clarify what what these numbers are for, especially StatCast numbers. And it's for exactly what you said. I mean, I think that the best stat, especially a StatCast, a next level kind of stat, either tells you you are exactly right or 100 percent wrong. You know, so it either serves to confirm what you're think, thinking and seeing or tell you that maybe you are missing something. Maybe you're not seeing something entirely correctly. And I always say that, you know, people tend to bristle, especially at the stack has stats, stuff like sprint speed, the expected stats, hard hit rate. You know, why do we care how hard that ball was hit? anything else. And I always say that these are descriptive. I mean, we use them to be evaluative, but these are descriptive of stuff that has been happening in the game 
for more than 100 years, whether or not we could measure them. And all this does is help us be able to measure them and then make some comparisons and evaluate players a little bit better. And, you know, to the point with the hard hit specifically, um, and Jason knows this because we've done this on the StatCast broadcast probably every single time, the the batting average on a batted ball that is 95 plus miles an hour, which is hard hit, is higher, like significantly higher than something that isn't. I mean, I don't have the number in front of me, but the usual split is about 450 to 500 plus batting average when you hit the ball that hard and about a 200 batting average when you don't hit it at least 95 miles an hour. So this all just helps us put this information that already existed, it just wasn't being measured into something that is, you know, sortable, searchable, and it helps teams, it helps fans, it helps analysts, helps everybody else. But the fact that you are going to it from, I see something on the field and then I wanna see if I'm right, that's the perfect use. Like that is the point to me in a lot of ways. And we should note that with small sample sizes over the course of a week's time, it ends up being the difference of 400 and 200 is just a handful of hits. So if you watch seven days of baseball and you see several flare hits, you may say, well, that happens all the time. And you say, yeah, it actually happens about half as often as hard hit balls fall in. But our brain works in weird ways where the exceptions become the rule. Ground ball that is hit to the opposite side of the field uh, against a pull shift. You go, well, there you go. Why were they? Why were they? Well, that's his third hit all year, right? And 500 a bats to the right side of the diamond that's why teams play where they play definitely i find that and it's certainly not to criticize any broadcasts or anything else but i do find that we hear a lot about when the shift doesn't work and we never hear oh wow he was positioned perfectly there for that ground ball and uh you know that just gets to changing opinions and everything else but uh there's definitely more calling out of when it gets through than when the shortstop is standing exactly where he should be to field that ground ball. But Sarah, I like when we used to give out gold gloves for slugging percentage and RBIs and like oh my goodness. The, the the first example um, of this, like 2016, Adam Eaton had an amazing defensive run saved year in right field and was remarkable and Ben if you just look at errors everybody's the same out there who are some underappreciated players or specific skills of underappreciated players that stand out to you because of stats that we can help use to parse well you know I mean the first one that stands out to me because I just don't think he's a household name is Manuel Margot is a really great outfielder for the Rays, and I think I'm thinking of him because he came off the injured list like yesterday. Uh, but you know, he is, I think, tops in the majors in outs above average, which is the stack has defensive stat. And you know, he's on the Rays, and he's not a player that people necessarily know super well. And I think it's really fun to see names like that at top leaderboards. Obviously, we want our superstars to be really, really good. But I, I think these stats help us learn something about players that we might not have realized. You know, for instance, Juan Soto moved positions this year. He moved to right field, which was his natural position in the minors. He was position blocked by Bryce Harper, so he'd been a left fielder. But they moved him to right field, and he's actually been great defensively out there. And most people were concerned that he was okay in left field. He's going to be worse in right field. 
So I, I think it's really cool when fans can learn an added, you know, dimension to a player that they really like. Another fun one like that is Joey Gallo, who doesn't really get enough credit for his defense and his great arm. But because we can measure those things and he has all these games where he has, you know, two 95 mile an hour assists, which is really good and really hard uh, for an outfielder to be throwing from out there. We can appreciate him even beyond, you know, the 440 foot home runs. In the immediate, when you're looking something up, how often does your mind sidetrack you? <laughs> Constantly. I mean, that that's kind of the whole job. Like half the things I find are because I got sidetracked by it and I go down another path and then that's cooler instead. You know, um, I had a stat I tweeted out the other day where I was kind of looking into something on Max Scherzer and I guess he had two pitches with like a pretty low opponent batting average. And so, you know, I looked into it and I was curious how many guys had two pitches like that with a certain minimum. And the list ended up being like, I had a pretty low minimum for it, but it was like Craig Kimbrell with his two pitches, Herman Marquez, maybe Chris Bassett and a couple others. And I think when I tweeted out, I actually said, this was supposed to be a Scherzer note, but make from this what you will. I mean, it was really cool to see the other names on there. I think Patrick Sandoval was there as well. And I, I, that's something else that I love with stats is that I know they can get mangled. I know people can get angry, but it's also really fun when there's a list and someone's takeaway is entirely different from what mine was. And I think that's what's really cool about lists that are specifically that way or even a one liner, right? Not realizing so and so did that. I, I think that that kind of gets back to the shared experience of baseball. And there's always a follower who remembers, you know, Jeff Devannon having three straight multi-homer games, right? Like that's the funniest list in the world. It's like four guys who've had three straight multi-homer games and none of them are particularly notable. There's Frank Thomas, but it's the 1960s Frank Thomas. And then uh, I can't remember who the most recent one to do it was, but you know, that, he was the most recent. Okay, there we go. We were. Um, I, I I I jump in because Stoney yeah. and I were just talking about this last night because of Jorge Soler. Yes, exactly. Uh, Jeff Devannon had thirty three career home runs, <laughs> and six of them came in three days. It's just crazy, you know. <laughs> and like th this just gets to another thing that I love so much about baseball is you know we have our all time record holders, we have the Hall of Famers, we have the Hank Aaron's, we have Barry Bonds with all of his accumulations, everything else. And then we have stats that are held by guys like Jeff Devanek. And I think that's amazing. I mean, this came up back in April. Do you remember Pablo Sandoval had all of those pinch hit home runs? Yeah. And I think he tied the record for a single month or something. And that record was held by Rubio Durazo in 2001. And it's amazing. I mean, there's so many great hitters. And yes, I know if you're hitting a pinch hit home run, you're probably not the Hall of Famer because you're probably already in the game to begin with. But even still, it wasn't Matt Stairs. You know, it was a Rubio Durazo. And I just think like that encapsulates so much of what I love about this is that we have these great names and everybody knows them if you have a certain level of baseball fandom. But then sometimes I learn about a player because he's the only guy to do something and he did it, you know, 100 years ago. And that's really cool, too. All right, Sarah and Jason, I want to know uh, about this secret think tank that is only working on one thing quantifying the unquantifiable. Uh, I talked to a big league manager recently who talked about the next frontier is measuring confidence and kind of the idea of can it be measured and how do you measure it? How do you measure the final three outs in a ball game for a closer? 
which everybody in this sport over the last century says is more difficult to get than the previous three outs. Do you both think that literally in 25 years, we're going to have stats that measure the ability to stay healthy and the ability to be a good teammate (laughs) and the confidence quotient? Is that, you're giving me a look here, Benetti. (laughs) Sarah, what do you got on this? <laughs> it's a serious question, by the way. It's no, just not a cheeky question because it is something that is being discussed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important because I think a lot of these teams have pretty much reached mature design in terms of evaluating the player, what you see on the field, and what they can do skills-wise. And I do think that we know that there's a difference between you can take a player with very similar skills and one guy is the great clubhouse guy who everybody loves and it feels like when he's in the game, you're more likely to make that comeback. And then the other guy who nobody really talks to or hasn't made quite as many friends in the clubhouse or whatever else it might be. And other than the eye test and a manager being very aware of his guys, I don't know what the current answer would be. But I do think some of those things can be measurable at some point. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I think that the idea of confidence, like with some sorts of EKGs and looking at people's heart rates and everything else, I think eventually we could get to a point where you go into a lab in the off season and they have you do a bunch of things and you sort of figure out how you do in pressure situations based on that. And that could get to the closer question as well. For the, you know, teammate and everything else, I I think that some things in baseball are best left to being the coaches and the managers just forever. And that's something that also comes up as a numbers person is everyone assumes that I have no respect for the intangibles. And that's not true at all. I I do think that that's another important facet of the game. And I, I can't imagine, I mean, imagine if we had like, He's a five clubhouse guy. I mean, I just, and and that was on fan graphs. You know, I'm sure that teams have some sort of thing that they keep in mind, whether it's a number or not. And I'm sure those are things that go on in draft rooms too. But I'm just imagining sorting by that on fan graphs right now. So I I actually, I have, have either of you taken the Enneagram? Do you know what that is? Yes. Yes. But I don't remember a, my answer, though, so don't ask me. No, and I, I'm going to pretend to not remember mine. So the Enneagram, for those who haven't taken it, is a personality test, essentially, that puts you in a category from one through nine, depending on what type of personality. And then it gives you like a wing as well. So you can be like a nine with a two wing. And it tells you what type of personality you are in that personality test. And I don't know how scientific the Enneagram is. I've had a lot of people in corporate America tell me that they've taken it. And I do believe, as you were saying that, Sarah, that and, and Len asking the question, you could veritably see a Major League Baseball team have all of its players take the Enneagram. And if you have too many eights, you don't want to have a bunch of threes or whatever it is because they clash with each other. Like you could foster based on psychologically driven personality tests, a clubhouse that either has a lot of different numbers or a whole group of one faction and then a smaller group of another faction they're supposed to get along with very well. And you could veritably say, we ain't got no sixes here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And number, I mean, it's amazing that it's numbers, you know, but I do think that, you know, it's interesting you mentioned how it's a popular thing in corporate America. 
I do wonder how close we are to a team doing something like that, just with the fact that so much of how front offices work has changed towards being from not quite corporate America, but a certain, I guess, a certain segment of corporate America, right? A lot of the focus on analytics is coming from people who didn't have as strong baseball backgrounds, but have very strong numbers backgrounds or have very strong backgrounds in things like consulting, whatever else. So I do wonder if that's another one of these frontiers that might bleed over. And I think that's a really cool concept. But I also wonder, I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm thinking about baseball players doing that test and how that would go. <laughs> well, I've asked this question to some people. Would a team be brave enough at some point to have two managers? And you have a motivational manager and, and his or her job is one thing. And that is you're in charge of personalities. You're in charge of the clubhouse. You get to do the media interviews. And then we have a game manager and that person knows all the angles, knows all the numbers, knows all the, you know, the book rules to, to do it perfectly. I don't think the industry is ready for that at this point, but Sarah, do you think that at some point uh, a group might do that at the minor league level, test it out and maybe do it at the big league level? Definitely. I mean, I think it sounds, it makes so much sense. You know, I, I agree that, you know, the sport is probably not at that point yet, but I'm thinking of the San Diego Padres. I'm pretty sure that Skip Schumacher's title is like assistant manager and whichever, whatever the exact title is. I know that when I saw that, I, my first thought was I've never seen that before, you know, and he kind of does the bench coach role, but it is interesting that it has manager in the title, right? I mean, that is pretty different. So I think that that could almost be a, um, a starting point for that kind of concept. And I also think that, and you guys would know this better than I, just knowing more people in the game, but I think there are probably a lot of teams where that's almost close to the truth, maybe with a player sort of filling that uh, non-game manager role. You know, I, I feel like you see a lot of teams where, you know, the managers make the pitching changes, everything else, but the team leader doesn't necessarily seem to be a manager. And that's not bad. I mean, I think that all teams are different. But you almost wonder about a team where there's a really strong team leader. What if that person was kind of considered in that light? And what if they were? I mean, not that a player would necessarily want to be talking every single day before the game or whatever else. But you could see how the coverage and the perception of a team could change, too, if you really considered that person as the sort of spiritual, I don't mean religious, but the sort of spiritual leader of the team, as opposed to going to the manager for everything. So uh, we've worked a bunch of games together. I've known you for years now, and I've never asked this either. Where does your boundless positivity come from? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have no idea. Um, I just really love baseball. And, you know, I, I mean, I guess I should credit my parents here, too. But, you know, they're actually the two most pessimistic sports fans I've ever met. I will roast them here for a little bit. My mom is a San Francisco Giants fan, and if you talk to her, you would think they're in last place. They are currently leading the division. Um, and my father is a Mets fan, and I, I hear reports that he turns off the game after two innings if they're not winning. I mean, it, it, so it's not necessarily from there with the baseball specifically. Uh, but, you know, I, I just I love the game, and it brings so much positivity that I just guess I sort of pattern myself after it. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> you're never – I, I guess, you know, everybody's unhappy at some point, but you're like the best teammate. There's no negative word Thank about you. anybody at any time. And I just, 
I was wondering where that came from because I, I know think I know where it does. She doesn't read the replies. <laughs> yes. That's the key to life, exactly. Benetti. <laughs> but, I, but I honestly like, I, you know, I don't want to be uh, too deep here, but I do think there are a lot of people around the country who've had really rough goes of it over the last 18 months. And I will say when we do a game together, there is some energy transmitted from you to everybody on the crew. And I, I think it would be instructive for all of our listeners to know where you get that when you wake up every morning. You know, I'm just really grateful to be doing these things. I mean, you know, back to your question about the 12 year old self. I mean, I wouldn't have ever really been able to think that I would be doing any of this, let alone calling that game that I did last week. And, you know, I, I never I, it isn't purposeful, but I don't ever want anyone to think that I'm unhappy with any of this because I'm not. I mean, it's amazing and it's wonderful, but I would never want someone to catch a an off moment and think something different because it wouldn't be the truth whatsoever. And so maybe that's part of it, but I, I really don't know. This is just how I approach baseball and everything. I, I will tell you there's some negativity when it's the off season and I'm like, huh. I guess I have to watch football now. And, you know, I like other sports, but it's just not the same. And I'm sitting here like, I want to watch a baseball game, not this. We what can't quantify you your happiness. You just, you're just happy. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She's a, she's a nine. There are no sixes, Benetti, in this uh, room. That's right. That's, what, uh, <laughs> what would you be doing if not this, Sarah? Oh, my gosh. See, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I'm just so grateful to be here. But I think I would. I So I majored in psychology, which is completely unrelated. And it's related to some of the conversation we've had, but it's not related to what I do. Um but I don't think I was ever going to go into psychology research or anything. I, I knew that I was just doing that because it was interesting to me to work towards work towards sports. But I think I might be a teacher. Um, I really loved teaching, uh, leading classes and uh, tutoring people and all of that kind of stuff all throughout. I mean, starting in really in high school. And I do think there's an overlap with you know, leading baseball reference training sessions and everything else that uh, I really enjoy working with people and helping them have that moment to see something. And again, for me in this in this role, it's usually in the baseball realm, but I, I sort of think that that would have ended up being what I was doing in as a normal teacher, not a baseball teacher. <laughs> Sarah, my last question for you is um, for White Sox fans listening, Give them a one paragraph reason why the White Sox are a legit World Series contender in 2021. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it was on display last night or, you know, in the last few days uh, with Eloy Jimenez returning with the fact that Luis Robert is now in his uh, AAA rehab assignment. They got to this point without those guys. And those guys were supposed to be the keys to the offense and the keys to this team. And instead, they have barely played. Robert only played a little bit. And uh, Eloy hadn't played until two days ago. And they've been dominating, I think, in so many ways. I, I just think that that pitching and the way that Tony La Russa has managed that pitching staff, which is pretty different from a lot of other pitching staffs in the majors, even the really good ones, I, I think that's going to serve them really well. I think Lance Lynn has been, you know, absolutely outstanding, and it was great to see him get that extension. And having a guy like that who can eat innings and also be right towards the top of the ERA leaderboard, I mean, there are not a lot of teams that have a guy like that. And the Carlos Rodon story has been amazing. So, you know, maybe I'm giving my pitch more of just why I love watching them so much, but I think 
that that overlaps exactly with why they're such a legit contender and, you know, bullpen, everything else. I mean, just all the things that we look into to see, okay, can they really sustain this? They check every single box. And again, two of the most impactful offensive players have basically not played so far this season and are expected to be there by that, you know, game one in October. And we should note, we are uh, recording this interview uh, before the trade deadline. So you may be listening and there may be another player or two potentially in the mix. Exactly. As we let you go, uh, we like to ask this of most, if not all of our guests. Um, if you were being quizzed for a million dollars and you had to pick the special topic, but it had nothing to do with baseball, what topic would you select that we could quiz you on? Oh my gosh. So already the not, not having to do with baseball is, is tough because I basically only know baseball in my, in my life. Uh, maybe, maybe classic rock. Like I, I feel like everything is really just from my parents, but we listen to a lot of classic rock. So, uh, you know, or just references from like the fifties to the seventies. Like, I think I would do really well in that, especially for my age. Like Tim Kirchner mentioned, uh, get smart as the best sitcom of all time on uh, a broadcast on Monday on ESPN. And I was saying there, like, I'm the only 28 year old in the world who knows what he's talking about and gets the agent 99 references and not because of the Steve Carell one, but like, because of actual get smart. So may, maybe that. <laughs> because of Don Adams, the, yeah. the clutch old. Rick Hahn said 90s hip hop. Oh my God. So he's <laughs> younger than me somehow at heart. That's amazing, right? Yeah, yeah I, I, that's, that's, a, that's a wild ride we just were on. Um, <laughs> Sarah Langs, it was so wonderful to talk to you. Congratulations on all your success and may you have decades more of it and, and even more than you've had already. Thank you so much. Thank you both for having me. This is a lot of fun. It's not often that I go this long without actually talking about really the stats. I mean, we got into a little bit, but uh, this is really fun. So thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.